We'll have the privilege this evening of having Pastor Jonas close out the conference. Uh, but this is the last of our morning sessions. And we put, we scheduled for this morning a session on church discipline. A biblical church practices church discipline. My task this morning is to argue that. A biblical church practices church discipline and explain that. Another way of saying this is simply that a biblical church has processes to, in place to hold its members, including its leaders, accountable for doing the sorts of things we talked about this week. So a biblical church should do this, a biblical church should do that, a biblical church should be like this, should be like that. What happens if it's not? What then? A biblical church, in that case, practices church discipline. A biblical church doesn't just shrug or just ignore or turn a blind eye to the problems within it. If a biblical church should be this, but our church is that, a biblical church would practice church discipline in such an instance. This is where the rubber hits the road. We've talked about all of these things, and and I've made the distinction already this week between theory and practice. Biblical churches practicing church discipline are churches that are actively, intentionally closing the gap between theory and practice. Biblical churches insist that what is what ought to be in theory is what will actually be pursued in practice. And there are processes in place to ensure, insofar as possible, that it will be the case that theory meets practice. And that's why we put this in this week. Because we can come here and talk about what a biblical church should be. But at the end of the day, actions speak louder than words. And a church needs to practice church discipline in order to be that which it actually ought to be. In other words, a biblical church prizes orthopraxy which is right practice, as well as orthodoxy, which is right doctrine. Biblical biblical churches practicing church discipline help ensure that there is not only orthodoxy in the church, but that there is also orthopraxy in the church. And so a biblical church practices church discipline. I think the first order of business is to define terms. Church discipline can be either formative or corrective. Formative discipline is like the discipline of an athlete in refraining from eating certain foods or the discipline that an athlete exercises in completing his scheduled training sessions. Formative church discipline is the normal set of expectations that a church has of its members. To worship on the Lord's Day, to gather meaningfully with other Christians between Sundays, to obey God's words, etc., etc. As an athlete expects certain things of himself, or as his coach or trainer expects certain things of him, formatively to form him into that which he ought to be, a biblical church expects certain things of its members on an ongoing basis. This is formative church discipline. 
A church which insists on these sorts of things, worshiping on the Lord's Day, gathering meaningfully with other believers, obeying God's word, etc., is a disciplined church as opposed to an undisciplined church. In an undisciplined church, there would be very loose expectations, if any, upon its members. Just as an undisciplined person has very loose expectations of himself. Or an undisciplined sports team or sports club has very loose expectations of its players. And churches should embrace formative discipline. We shouldn't set the expectations lower for our members than the Bible sets them for Christians. We should expect people to worship on the Lord's Day. We should expect people to gather meaningfully with other Christians between Sundays. We should expect Christians in our churches, church members, to obey God's Word because this is what the Bible expects of Christians. We aren't at liberty to adjust the standard of Christian behavior given to us in the Scripture. One way or the other. I've said to our church on more than one occasion, we we need to be wide where the Bible is wide, and we need to be narrow where the Bible is narrow. We may differ, even within a church, let alone between churches, on certain things where the Bible doesn't address them. But no church should be loosey-goosey on important biblical issues. When it comes to what the Bible says, churches should be serious about that and strict about that. They should expect what the Bible expects of Christians. A church should expect that of its members. This is formative church discipline. Now, corrective church discipline is what happens when the expectations that a church has of its members are not met. Corrective church discipline is what happens when formative church discipline is not embraced or adhered to on the part of a member. And corrective church discipline happens along a spectrum. Everything from, even like we talked about yesterday, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting, all the way to excommunication, removing someone from the membership of the church. Corrective church discipline happens all along that spectrum. Corrective church discipline presupposes that the expectations that a church has of its members are non-negotiable. You can't discipline someone for not meeting an expectation that's flexible in the first place. And the only way that a church's expectations of its members can be non-negotiable is if those expectations are biblical. So again, we're back to formative discipline. Require no more, no less than what the Bible requires of Christians in your church. But then having done that, implement corrective church discipline when those non-negotiable expectations are not met. In view of all this, my main point this morning is that a church should expect of its members what, a Bi- what the Bible expects of Christians. 
A church should expect of its members what, a Bible, what the Bible expects of Christians. And a church should take disciplinary action, corrective disciplinary action, when those expectations are not met. Let's look first at the idea that a church should expect of its members what a Bible expects, what the Bible expects of Christians. There should be formative discipline in place. This ought not to be a controversial idea. Consider Paul's communication with the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 1. Listen. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated, even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. Apparently, the Corinthian church was tolerating what Corinthians outside the church would not even tolerate. But more to the point, the Corinthian church was tolerating sin. It's not as if by this time in redemptive history, it's not as if God had not clearly spelled out a sexual ethic. It's not as if by this time the Corinthians didn't really know what God expected of Christians and so they were just confused. No, they knew that God expects sex to occur only within a marriage. And yet they tolerated deviance from this standard. And Paul rebukes them for it, implying that if the Bible expects more from Christians, if God expects more from Christians, then the Corinthian church ought to expect more from its members. As a pastor, who am I to police, so to speak? As a pastor, which Christians should I police, so to speak? Not every Christian everywhere. I don't go hide in the bushes with binoculars waiting for, pe- for Christians to sin and then come out and deal with it. That's not my responsibility. But who should I be policing? The members of my church. There should be some oversight there, some accountability there. Church members, who are you to confront about sin. Likewise, not every Christian everywhere. I don't expect you, the Bible doesn't expect you to go hide in the bushes either. But certainly your fellow church members of that local church where you belong. We, pastors and members alike, and other members alike, together are to refuse to tolerate in our midst unchristian behavior. What God expects of Christians, a church should expect of its members. And now we move to the next part of my main idea. A church should take disciplinary action when those expectations are not met. Again, this should not be controversial. It's, it's not only the clear teaching of Scripture, but also common sense. If your body's immune system does not resist disease... What happens? You get sick. 
and you would eventually die. If a sports team does not take disciplinary action against a player who regularly misses practices, more and more will begin doing it and the team will grow weaker and weaker and inevitably become a losing team. You've got to put that man on the bench for the first half. Or take some sort of action. Or the team starts to lose. Its work ethic deteriorates and disappears and you become a losing team. You look at the end of the year and you won three games and you lost 11. Why? Because there was no corrective discipline on the team. It's not only the clear teaching of scripture, though it is that and more in a moment. It's common sense. If a church does not prize faithfulness to God in doctrine and in practice, what's going to happen to that church? It will become unfaithful in doctrine and practice. Common sense. It is also the plain teaching of Scripture, though, that the church should take disciplinary action when the expectations, and remember the biblical expectations, that it has of its members are not met. In the rest of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5, we see the final stage of the process outlined, namely excommunication. Listen as I read, beginning at verse 2. Remember this man is sleeping with his stepmom. And verse 2, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with the sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders, outsiders, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Here we see a case of a flagrant, unrepentant sinner. And the apostle's instruction about how to respond to it. In a nutshell, Paul's instruction is found in verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. 
the rest of this chapter is just expanding upon the rationale and process for removing this man from the Corinthian church. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is the final step in the church discipline process, and we're going to circle back around to it. But Matthew 18, 15 to 17 provides a paradigm for dealing with sin in the church, leading up to the final stage of the church discipline process. And that it's only a paradigm, as opposed to step-by-step instructions, is obvious by considering the absurdity of following this woodenly. And I'll expand on that in a moment. But let's read and consider this passage. Matthew eighteen fifteen to 17 If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Would we expect a woman who, has, who claims to have been sexually assaulted by a man in the congregation to go and confront him about his sin alone? No, certainly not. We would implement an investigative process involving more than one person from the very beginning. And are there cases in which a church should act immediately, bypassing the earlier steps of the process? Yes. And 1 Corinthians 5, in fact, seems to be a case in point. He doesn't say, let's begin a process here. He says, put them out. The sin is so flagrant that it calls into question any professed 11th hour repentance. However, in most cases, the principles here in Matthew 18 apply. First, the sinning member should be approached by one person, then two or three if necessary. And most of the time, listen, we, we, we sometimes talk about church discipline as if it's only excommunication. But remember I said it's a spectrum. And it's everything from reproving, rebuking, and exhorting all the way to excommunication. Most of the time, corrective church discipline doesn't get past this first stage where one or two go and talk to the person. The vast majority of cases are resolved there at that end of the spectrum. You know why? Because genuine Christians tend to listen to and accept correction. As our brother preached to us last night, my sheep hear my voice and follow me. If a quantifiable charge is brought to a person with evidence of guilt to a genuine Christian, the only valid response is the humble acknowledgement of sin and the requisite repentance. Brother, you sinned in this matter. It's, it's clear, it's not debatable. There were more than one person there at the time when you said such a thing or did such a thing. Brother, you need to repent. Most of the time, a genuine Christian says, you're right. You're right. And so, thank God, most corrective church discipline is simply administered by means of conversations among brothers and sisters. And it's resolved there. But it is corrective, isn't it? 
the expectations have not been met and correction is happening. It's on one end of the spectrum, but it's corrective discipline. The pastors and or members of the church have come to talk to someone about it. They've come to address it. There's a process in place to correct the issue that has come up in the church. Now, if the sinning member refuses to repent at this end of the spectrum, then we move a little further along the spectrum. The ones who have approached the sinful member should make the sin known to the church. So conversations have happened, not just brother to brother or sister to sister, but after that, if there's been no repentance, a couple more have been brought in to witness the conversation, to testify to the clear facts that the brother or sister has sinned. Still, they're not listening. Tell it to the church. And in our church here in Barbados, different ones may have different understandings of the best way to do this. We understand that the most appropriate way at this stage is to bring the matter to the attention of the pastors. And the pastors will then act as representatives of the church, hearing of the sin, hearing of the issue, the steps that have been taken so far, and will begin giving some leadership to this process. The pastors may, on behalf of the church, go and speak to the sinful member in question, on behalf of the church. Then if the sin is serious enough, or persistent enough, to call the sinning member's salvation into question, and there's no repentance... In our church, what would happen then is the pastors would then recommend to the congregation to revoke the sinful person's membership, excluding him or her from membership in the community of God's people. In our case, we would present that. We would have a period where the members of the church are encouraged to go and plead with his brother or sister to repent of their sin. But if after a week or two or whatever the period is, there's still no repentance then we would put someone out of the church. And it's this last stage that 1 Corinthians 5 is dealing with. So let's circle back around to this last stage, this end of the spectrum now. Not just, not just a conversation among brothers, but there's been no repentance, there's been no repentance, more have been involved, the pastors have become involved, now it's gone all the way to become a public issue in the congregation. This is what 1 Corinthians 5 is dealing with. And I'd like to make a couple points here at this juncture before moving on. The sin in question must be quantifiable before excommunication can occur. For example, you can't exercise formal church discipline for pride or coveting. You might exercise formal church discipline for the harsh words that many suspect to be the fruit of pride. You may excommunicate someone for the theft that many suspect to be the fruit of coveting. But you can't excommunicate someone for something you can't measure or prove. Imagine that meeting. We're going to put this brother out of the church because he's proud. Well, I'm sorry, brothers and sisters. I, I don't know exactly how, how I've gone wrong. Can you be a bit more clear with me? You're proud. How, in what way am I proud? What have I done that I need to repent for? We just know you're proud. And we're going to put you out. You see what I mean? Then next, sometimes a sin is provable, but it's worth forbearing with. For example, 
Imagine someone in your church has a pirated version of a movie on their computer or on a DVD. That's a sin. It's stealing. It's theft. Breaking intellectual property laws, copyright laws, is sin. But let's imagine that this brother or sister also has a strange and erroneous view of intellectual property. And they defend their decision to keep the digital file instead of deleting it. So you talk to them about them, you explain, you know, just like you wouldn't go take your neighbor's lawnmower. If your neighbor has produced intellectual property, you can't go take that either. And let's say for whatever reason, they're mixed up, they're confused, whatever. For whatever reason, they want to keep, they've, they've, they have a pirated DVD of The Lion King in their cupboard at home. Is this worth going all the way to excommunication over? I would suggest probably not. And here's my rationale. There's a difference between the sort of toleration of sin that I mentioned earlier. We must not tolerate sin in our midst. We must have processes in place to deal with sin in our midst. There's a difference between the sort of toleration of sin that doesn't care about it and doesn't deal with it. And the sort of forbearance of sin that I'm advocating for now. In the first case, one says it doesn't matter. You have, you have a pirated movie? It doesn't matter. Don't worry about that. It's not a big sin. That's the wrong attitude. Sin always matters. But in the second case, the kind of forbearance that I'm advocating for, it's more like this. It does matter, and yet I will patiently walk alongside you while you're in the process of figuring it out. Sometimes an immature Christian is just that. Immature. And they need the time and space and the context of the local church to continue to grow and to develop in their Christian life. And so maybe you decide, I'm going to circle back around to this conversation again in a few weeks. You say it does matter, but I'm going to help you get there. It doesn't necessarily call into question that person's salvation, their profession of faith. And so it may not be worth going all the way to excommunication for. So those are just a couple of clarifications and nuances as we move forward. But the big idea stands. A church should expect of its members what the Bible expects of Christians. And the church should take disciplinary action when those expectations are not met. In the early stages of church discipline, it's like ripples in a pond. There's a small group of people, an individual or a couple people that go talk to them. But if there's no repentance, it gets wider and wider until it goes to the whole church. And finally, if it comes to that last stage, how is excommunication done? 1 Corinthians 5 speaks to that. First, we see that excommunication is implemented by the congregation, normally in conjunction with its leaders. And I say normally because sometimes it's the leaders who are in trouble. Is the leaders who are in sin. Look at verses 3 to 5 of 1 Corinthians 5. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul instructs the Corinthians to excommunicate the man, and thereby Paul is exercising leadership in this matter. But it is the Corinthian congregation, not Paul, that actually excommunicates the man. You are to deliver this man to Satan. And that this was the way that the process happened is corroborated by 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 6, where this event is called the punishment by the majority. The punishment by the majority. Let me turn there and read the whole verse for you. This punishment by the majority is enough, referring to this man who was put out of the church. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by his excessive sorrow, and so on and so forth it goes. It's referring back to this incident that says the punishment by the majority. And this implies that it was a congregational vote. Under the instruction, the leadership of the pastors of the church, under Paul's leadership. But it was the congregation that put this man out. And why is it done? Look at verse 5. So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. It sounds harsh, but this is the reason why we do it. It's not because we don't love, it's because we do love. So that his spirit may be saved. The goal of any corrective discipline process, anywhere on the spectrum, from reproving, rebuking, exhorting, all the way to excommunication, the goal is never to harm. Yes, hurt maybe, the way a scalpel hurts when you have surgery, but never to harm. But to confront the sinful brother or sister with the seriousness of the sin at hand so that they may repent and be restored to fellowship. Just as this man in 1 Corinthians 5 was restored to fellowship in 2 Corinthians 2. What is the rationale for this process? Christ is likened unto the Passover lamb. And we are likened unto the unleavened bread that is to be eaten alongside of it. This is verses 6 to 8 in 1 Corinthians 5. As the unleavened bread symbolized purity. Not even a little bit of leaven in it. As the unleavened bread symbolized purity under the Old Covenant. So, in like manner, the church is to be pure under the New Covenant. What does it look like to exercise corrective church discipline? As I said, at this end of the spectrum, it looks just like a conversation. On the other end of the spectrum, it looks like putting the sinful member in question out of the church. Verses 9 to 13. I am writing to you, verse 11, not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? 
God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This step of the process looks like no longer treating the sinful member in question casually and formally as if nothing's wrong. Don't just go on as if everything's okay once you put him out of the church. Yeah, we had to put him out of the church, but I mean, he's still my best friend. Yeah, we had to put him out of the church, but here we are on Friday night watching a movie together. Yeah, we put him out of, out of the church, but we're still going fishing next weekend. Yeah, we put him out of the church, but we don't want to be too harsh, so let's, still just, let's just still treat him the same and just pretend it never happened. We need to cut off normal patterns of friendship and collegiality that ought to characterize our relationship between one another as Christians. When it says not even to eat with such a one, my understanding is not that we need to then avoid the cafeteria table with co-workers who have been put out of the church or something like that. But rather we are to avoid the sort of situations that would be understood as table fellowship. And so maybe, maybe there's a close friend of yours in the church, another couple maybe, that you have over to your house every week or two. And you have dinner together and you enjoy wonderful fellowship together. And then the church puts that couple out of the church. Something has to change. You don't keep doing that. You don't have the excommunicated member over to your home for ordinary in-home hospitality and that sort of thing. However, in my understanding, you're still permitted to speak to him, evangelize to him, work with him if he's a co-worker and so on and so forth, just as you would with an unbeliever. He says here, he says here, if, you, if, you, if I meant those outside the church, you'd have to leave the world. We're basically treating the person now like an unbeliever. The point is that he understands and feels like when he's been excommunicated from the church, when he's been put out, the point is that he understands and feels like he's gone from the inside to the outside because he has. He's no longer publicly recognized as belonging to Christ. The church is essentially saying we no longer recognize this one as a brother. We no longer recognize this one as a sister. And he or she is to feel the sting and pain of that again so that, so that, as mentioned earlier, his spirit or her spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This will be a means that God uses to bring a genuine believer to repentance. They will see and understand the seriousness of their sin. Come around. This is our shepherd's rod and staff which comfort us. So that's a brief overview and explanation of my main idea that a church should expect of its members 
what a Bible, what the Bible expects of Christians, and should take disciplinary action when those expectations are not met. Doubtless, there will be some questions now in our question and answer period, and I invite you to ask away. But let me wrap up with this challenge. Just because something is uncomfortable for you, it doesn't mean it's wrong. In our day and age, this sort of practice of church discipline is very countercultural. It's very countercultural even within the church at large to practice the sort of church discipline that I spoke about this morning. Many have adopted a distorted view of grace and love that leaves no room for confrontation, consequences, discipline, clear lines of demarcation, judgment, discernment, etc. Practicing church discipline, therefore, won't be easy in this day and age. But I have shown you from 1 Corinthians 5 and from Matthew 18 that it's biblical. And that's the bottom line. As I preached Sunday, if we are to seek the increase of Christ, we must receive His testimony. As I preached Monday, we must functionally and not just theoretically be biblical. As I preached yesterday, we must embrace the whole counsel of God, including 1 Corinthians 5. Church discipline is not the main idea in Scripture, but it very clearly is one of the ideas in Scripture. And as such, we are not at liberty to reject it. And we've talked this week about being a biblical church, becoming a biblical church. How serious are we about doing that? This is a sober note to strike. In a conference like this where we've heard some, some wonderful and inspiring and encouraging and edifying sessions. But the bottom line is if we have it all in theory, but not in practice. If we say what the expectations are, but then people violate them and we're not willing to do anything about it. Can we really say that we're a biblical church? We need to follow through. Many a new business has failed, not because the entrepreneur didn't have good ideas, but because he didn't have the follow through. He didn't put in the work. In some sense, that's analogous to a biblical church. We can have all the right ideas about being a biblical church. But when it comes down to it, as church members, are you willing to tolerate unchristian behavior from your fellow church members? As pastors, are you willing to tolerate unbiblical and unchristian practices within your church? Or are you willing to do the hard work of bringing your church into conformity with the Word of God? Oh, that we would seek Christ's increase. Receive and declare His Word. All of it. And not just theoretically, but functionally. Oh, that we would embrace not only orthodoxy, but also orthopraxy. 
And church discipline is one means to that end. A church should expect of its members what the Bible expects of Christians. And a church should take disciplinary action when those expectations are not met.